the National Archives podcast series, Untold Histories, Black Britons during the period of the British slave trade, circa 1660 to 1807, presented by Dr. Kathleen Chater. I came to this subject through family history. I've been tracing my own family history for mm, over 30 years now. And about 12 years ago, I was investigating part of my father's uh, line. And I came across somebody that I couldn't really place. I couldn't find his birthplace. And there were, I won't go into this because it's boring for non-family historians. But I thought, is this man black? But none of the records that he was in mentioned it. So I thought, why can't I find this out? Something quite as simple as that. He would have been born about 1803. And so I read the sort of histories of black people in England that had been published at that time. And I thought, there's something a bit wrong here. I'd spent 20 odd years by then, nearly 30 years, looking at primary sources. And there, were, there, were not, there was not discrimination against black people. They were treated just the same as everybody else, or at least so I thought. And I thought, I need to do a bit more work on this. So I started and set up, and I've now set up a huge database of about 5,000 individuals um, in England from Tudor times up to about the beginning of Queen Victoria's reign. And I realized in the course of doing this why very often people aren't mentioned as black in the records. Long and complicated, won't go into it. It's in my doctoral thesis, I must encourage you to buy it. <laughs> So I thought, actually, that's just sort of how I came to this subject. Now, I suppose we all have um, a stereotyped picture of the black person in 18th century England. The sort of the page boy, you know, at the, or if you like, the fashion accessory. This is one of Charles II's uh, mistresses with a small black boy. And we see so many of these pictures. We see them as, and think, that that is what, you know, black people were in the 18th century. Here's another one, the small page boy. Interestingly, dressed in what is obviously um, Asian dress, Indian, from the Indian subcontinent. That was fashionable at the time. It wasn't that people, you know, were confused about where the black people came from. Again, just a servant. And so, as I say, this is very much the stereotypical picture that we have. This is, I suppose, because the visual images are so arresting and they stay with us. But these actually capture only a moment in what might have been a very long and eventful life. We also have to remember that before the First World War, the majority of people started off their lives as servants. Both my great-grandmothers did, as servants of one kind or another. This was the standard first job for the poor before the First World War. Now, what we need to ask ourselves as well, I'm covering um, both people of African origin here and people from the Indian subcontinent. And I'm covering both of them because both are referred to as black in the records. There is not often a great distinction made. You don't actually know a huge amount of the time. So we need to look at how both ethnic communities got here. The English slave trade, um, well, it sort of started in Tudor times. John Hawkins made three slave trade journeys to Africa. 
he didn't seem to grasp fully that he was supposed to buy people from the um, African sellers. He was trying to kidnap people. It didn't go down at all well. So he made only three not particularly successful um, voyages. And then things went quiet. Various companies were formed to trade with Africa in the, um, the 17th century. And towards the, uh, the end of that period, about the sort of 1650s, we start to see that some of them mention getting what they called Negro servants for sale in the Americas. But it wasn't until the founding of the Royal African Company, um, which was there to regulate the trade in slaves, that um, in 1672, that we can really say that there was an established slave trade. And then... In 1698, the Royal African Company lost its monopoly. And over the 18th century, the number of black people in England grew as a sort of a spin-off or a byproduct of the slave trade itself. Asians in England arrived, of course, by a different route. In 1600, there was a charter granting a monopoly of trade to the governor and company of the merchants of London trading into the East Indies. I expect they got stay sick of saying that or writing it so often, and then they called it the East India Company. It did also, though, trade with China. China and Africa were very similar in that um, people who wanted to trade with them had to remain on the coast in specified areas. It was um, Canton and Macau in China, and it was just the forts along the coast in West Africa where the, um, you know, the traders had to remain. In India, however, um, people moved in. The f well, the Europeans of all kinds moved in quite uh, quickly and were trading there. So they brought back servants. Um, some, some of the traders brought back servants. They brought back wives. They brought back children. And people traveled between India and um, Europe fairly freely. And then in uh, 1858, the East India Company was wound up and the Crown assumed sovereignty of it and the India office, an arm of government, was established. So these are the origins of people on my database. And the really interesting thing, I think, is how many people you have no idea where they came from. They are simply called black. And that is nearly three quarters. We have no idea where they came from or what in fact their ethnicity was, whether they were from, of African origin or from the Indian subcontinent. Um, as you see, the majority of uh, people where we do know where they came from are from the Caribbean. Um, that's followed by Africa and the East Indies, roughly equal amounts and then North America, much smaller proportion, and a few from elsewhere, um, you know, Sumatra, South Africa, but that number is very, very small. Because as I say, for three quarters of the people on my database, we haven't got any idea. So, what were they doing? Well, again, um, we've seen all the stereotypical pictures, the ones that we know. When you look, however, at prints, contemporary prints, you see that actually they were just part of the crowd. This is a game you can play with any 18th century uh, print of London to look at the crowd. They're simply faces in the crowd. It's not a, a very, very big deal. It's not a surprise. They don't live 
in separate communities. They don't live in ghettos. They are part of the crowd. This is Hogarth's Noon. You possibly know this. Um, it's a fairly well-known well uh, representation. It's outside, in fact, um, the French Huguenot Church in what's now Charing Cross um, Road. And what uh, Hogarth is doing here is contrasting all these fancy French people who he didn't much like with perfectly normal English people <laughs> behaving well. And then, when we move to the East End, uh, Tom and Jerry. It's, uh, it's, it was a series. It was a tremendously popular book later turned into a play of uh, two people going around London looking at what was on offer there. And this is uh, somewhere in the East End. And again, we see that it's a mixed community. I can't tell you how popular this book was. They made China figurines of them. And we see again, there's another black person. It's not a very big deal. This is what early 19th century London looked like. The chap at the end here. From his dress, the top hat and the apron, he's either a butler or more likely a shopkeeper. So again, just part of the crowd. However, we still do have, um, you know, servants. I'm not saying that no black person was a servant. We have this, um, this is a gravestone. Here lies the body of Scipio Africanus. It's from a, a gravestone just outside Bristol. We see a fair number of these. So yes, some of the people um, did remain in service. This is an extremely rare picture. This shows um, a woman um, who's obviously of Indian origin in uh, a portrait, a family portrait. It's quite common to find a small boy in there because they were used as status symbols. But it's very, very rare to see, it's rarer to see women. And this uh, showing someone from the Indian subcontinent is extremely uh, rare indeed. This is interesting because um, these are the children of Edward Cruttenden. Um, his wife died very, very young. And this is a painting by Joshua Reynolds. And it's quite interesting because this is, if you like, the standard portrait. Normally, you would either get, you know, the children with their mother or the children with both parents or the children by themselves. To have them with their ayah, their nurse, is extremely rare. I think this is probably because she took their mother's place. And she's not wearing um, what you would call standard, um, you know, Indian clothes. She is wearing Western clothes. I did this talk and showed this picture in um, Wandsworth last year, and people were <laughs> quite amazed. Oh, said the woman, her clothes are really, really expensive. She was surprised by this. But this doesn't seem, you know, this is just a again, a family portrait in a way, but with the ayah replacing the mother, who, as I say, um, died young. So I want to, you know, to show you the sort of variety of places where uh, the variety of roles that people um, played. Now, sources of information, uh, parish registers were my major source of information. Um, Another source of a lot of information, and I do encourage you to explore this site if you haven't tried it, um, Old Bailey Online. You know, the transcripts of trials at the Old Bailey. I went through all those, and I went through them, I have to say, the hard way, because, in fact, people aren't always mentioned as black in the trial transcripts. 
you have to deduce it some of the time from you know the evidence so I did that the hard way I read my way I didn't read every word but I went worked my way through about 10,000 trials <laughs> and among them there are only about 120 odd and even allowing for ones that I missed where the fact that somebody was black isn't mentioned um, that's only about 150 maximum that involved black people and involved them in three ways. They were either the um, defendant, they were accused of a crime, they were the prosecutor, they were bringing evidence because they were prosecuting a crime against them, or they were witnesses. And now this again, in the, um, the colonies, this, is ex this, is, this would have been impossible. Um, slaves could not testify against white people. But here we find um, also people bringing, black people bringing white people to court because something has, you know, they've had a crime committed against them. This actually is possibly the most common crime involving black people um, at the Old Bailey. Either two women, um, and very often black and white women work together. There's quite a lot of cases where there were two working together. Um, they're going to rob that sailor. They are going to get him. He has just come back with all his prize money and his wages from a long voyage overseas. They are going to get him very drunk indeed, and they are going to steal his money. Alternatively, it may be a black sailor or sometimes a black servant and two women are going to rob him. And that is the most common crime involving black people at the Old Bailey, usually um, either as victim or as perpetrator. The, one, the person who has made the most appearances, the black person who made the most appearances at the Old Bailey is actually a woman, a black woman called Anne Duck. Who, well, actually, she was mixed race. But she um, worked with uh, her friends, who, most of whom were white, in order to rob people. And she's, she made, I think, five or six appearances. And she kept getting acquitted for one reason or another. But then finally, no. So as I say, that's probably the most common crime. Another crime, this was quite an interesting one, is the, um, the Gordon Riots of 1780. Uh, Lord uh, George Gordon, who was not entirely sane, I suspect, um, roused a huge amount of anti-Catholic feeling. And for several days, the, rob, the, the mob ran amok in London, um, looting, burning. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've had the recent riots, so it was one of those things. One of the best accounts of the Gordon Riots, or one of the most interesting ones, oddly enough, um, was written by Ignatius Sancho, who was a shopkeeper in Westminster. If you don't know his work, I do encourage you to discover it. His letters were collected after his death. But he mentions um, the Gordon Riots and describes them. There were a lot of, you know, as many people as they could uh, were rounded up after this. There were three black people among them. And if you look at this as an engraving of it a bit closer, you can see again there is definitely at least one black person in the crowd. Well, the three that they picked up were um, Benjamin Bosey, John Glover, and Charlotte Gardner. All three of them, along with everybody else who was involved in this, was sentenced to death. 
that was a pretty standard punishment, or at least a pretty standard sentence at the time. The interesting thing here, though, is that both John Glover and Benjamin Bosey had worked for people and had left their service and were doing other jobs, but they got in touch with their old masters, who went to an enormous amount of trouble um, to get them pardoned. And I thought that was quite interesting, one, that they would do that, and two, that the um, links between master and servant survived even after the servants had left their employment. Incidentally, servant is always, always the word that is used um, to describe people. On the database, as I say, I've got about 5,000 entries, and there can't be more than 20 where somebody is described as a slave. One of them, in fact, is a chap who was a slave. Um, he's tried at the, um, the Old Bailey. He had been a slave in the West Indies, in Jamaica. And with his fa the family he works for as permission, um, he became a sailor. And then in London, he was involved in theft. He was, you know, he was caught, and again, the standard sentence, he was sentenced to be executed. But one of the family um, came over from Jamaica, or was in London at the time, and testified for him. So he was, um, he was freed back to the family. He was, you know, give it, sent back to them. Um, as I say, they could also be witnesses. This was quite a, uh, this is an interesting case. This is Captain John Sutherland, um, who stabbed his cabin boy, murdered the, uh, the cabin boy. And the chief witness against him at his uh, trial was uh, Jack Thompson, who was the, uh, the mate on the ship that he worked on. And Sutherland was hanged largely on um, Thompson's evidence. So that's quite an interesting insight into the fact that they were, you know, just ordinary people, that they had the same, um, the same rights as everybody else to give evidence against white people, which you couldn't have done at that time in the colonies. However, let's move away from the, um, the poor and move on to the one who perhaps um, was the richest uh, black person before the 20th century. This is um, Nathaniel Wells of Piercefield, and he is the son of a planter in Jamaica. Yeah, there's a huge number. He had, as you see, lots and lots of um, children by his various slaves, as well as, you know, the standard family. But in fact, Nathaniel here was amazingly privileged. He was given a huge, huge amount of money um, that he came into at 21. He came to England his education, which he didn't seem to have bothered about with much. Well, I mean, would you if you were going to be a multi-multi-millionaire? And he bought um, a big house called Piercefield just outside Chepstow and just settled down to the life of a country gent. He became the um, under-sheriff of Monmouthshire. His, the records, there are records relating to him um, in the National Archives here. There, he became master of local, a JP locally. He also became master of the foxhounds, which was probably a bigger thing than becoming a JP at that time, socially speaking. And the interesting thing about this is that the only way that we know that he is, of his antecedents, that he is black and how he got here is from private letters. And this, again, is one of the things that has 
amazed me that it's only through private things that we know that Nathaniel Wells, it took until the year 2000 for somebody to find him. You know, nobody had realised, if you see what I mean, that somebody could be um, the under-sheriff of, uh, you know, could be the son of a slave and yet become under-sheriff of Monmouthshire. Um, I've also, I'm doing some work at the moment on a chap called Brian Mackey, who, uh, like Nathaniel Wells, was the son of um, a, uh, I don't know what he did, he wasn't a plantation owner, he was in Jamaica, I think he may have been a lawyer, I'm not quite certain, but he wasn't a plantation owner, but his um, illegitimate son was sent to England, uh, went to Oxford, and he's in the, you know, the alumni of Oxford and all the rest of it, um, and his father then bought him a living um, which you could do at that time. You purchased one, he became at the rector of Coates in Gloucestershire. And I've researched his, you know, there's all his, you know, stuff about him in Crockford's, there's all his uh, academic career in the books on Oxford, um, graduates and all the rest. And the only place that he is, the, the only reason we know he's black, there's a lot of correspondence with um, the bishop, you know, in in. Gloucestershire and things like that. The only place we know it is, is the diary of um, the vicar, the rector of the place where his father retired to. That's the only place that it's mentioned. There's you know, a huge amount about him. Even his father's will doesn't mention that he's not his wife's son. The wife is mentioned and the son. And if you just read that, you would assume that he was, you know, his, his wife's son. But he isn't. He's the um, son by um, a slave in, in Jamaica. Another family tree, because I do like family trees. This is someone a lot lower down the social scale. This chap, John Cranbrook, he was baptised in 1754 in Rochester in Kent. He's just described as a black boy there. He then pitches up, this is the next record relating to him, this is his marriage record in the City of London, All Hallows Staining, and it doesn't mention colour. Marriage records almost never do. I've got uh, perhaps half a dozen on the database, but I know of lots and lots of people. And this is all to do with the um, status under the poor laws. Again, I'm not going into this, but um, marriage records, again, never mention, almost never mention, that someone was black. He then turns up next in Clapham, where one of his children is baptised. All these others are living in Clapham as well. They're getting married and having children. And um, it's only again when he's buried in 1796 that it mentions that um, he is, well, it calls him a mulatto and says he's a greengrocer. I like the fact that he was living in Clapham at the time the Clapham sect were all being busy about the abolition of uh, slave trade and slavery. I just hope they were buying their fruit and veg from him to show solidarity. Anyway, um, the family went on. Uh, this son here, um, this son here, I don't know what he did for a living. Um, this one became a nonconformist minister. And um, he had a huge number of uh, children. Uh, one of them was, went to university in Ireland and was apprenticed. This one um, here, Rebecca, married a chap called William Gregory. Um, he was involved in, he worked in, in some capacity in the Bank of England. He was quite, um, you know, important there. 
and their descendants uh, moved to Australia and there are still people descended from him living in Australia now. This little lot didn't do so well. Um, this guy stayed in uh, London and his children and his uh, grandchildren were just kind of carters, uh, which is the sort of the equivalent of white van man. They just delivered things, you know, and general laborers. Um, but this one here, John, he did very, very well for himself. He's a hairdresser. And I think he married one of his clients, Jane Sprott. She's rather well-to-do. And his will is in the, um, you know, it's one of the documents online here. The the PC, it's a PCC will. Um, their daughter, I think, died young. But he left a huge amount of money. And so, you know, he did rather well for himself, having been a hairdresser. So as I say, that's the, uh, the marriage record, perfectly ordinary. Um, and they, he was a greengrocer. Ignatius Sancho was um, a shopkeeper too. But there were lots of other jobs that black people did. Um, this is Joseph Emmerdy. I don't know if you know him. He's a, a Cornish musician. Um, he, well, interesting story. Um, he was uh, sent to, he was a slave. Um, and sent to the Portuguese court, to the royal court in Portugal, where he um, was taught um, a musical instrument. And then an English sea captain, because needed him an onboard musician. If you think before the days of radio, iPods and all the rest, you had your musician on board. Anyway, the musician was either dead or deserted. So the English captain kidnapped Joseph Emmerdy. <laughs> and kept him on board for several years, playing jigs and the like, and sea shanties, which must have been agony for poor Joseph, because he was classically trained. <laughs> anyway, finally, the sea captain brought him back to um, Falmouth in Cornwall, where he lived for a few years, married a local girl, and then moved to Truro. And he was very important in Cornish musical life. He's in the papers all the time giving concerts. He was also a composer. So just to show you that they weren't limited to sort of shopkeeping and all the rest of it, here's another one. Um, this is Joe Johnson, who was a beggar in London mainly in London, although on days out he would go as far as Romford. He sang patriotic songs. Um, this is a model of Nelson's flagship. This is the early um, sort of 19th century. And he sang his patriotic songs and he bowed so that the ship appeared to be dipping through waves. That was his gimmick. And he did rather well. Now, the reason that he became a beggar was he lost, um, he was wounded at sea. He was a merchant seaman. If he had been a Royal Navy um, sailor, he could have entered the Greenwich Hospital. And the records of the Greenwich Hospital, which are in um, the National Archives here, um, show a fair number of black people in there. You could either, you, could, you were treated in the Greenwich Hospital if you were a Royal Navy sailor, or um, you could choose to um, you know, live there after you left the sea. You or, or live as an out-pensioner, draw money and live out. Um, if you chose to live in, it was no wine, women or song, <laughs> but in fact, if you read the records of the, um, the Greenwich Hospital, you see that that was not always fully obeyed. <laughs> 
Now, as I say, if he had been a Royal Navy sailor, um, he could have entered the Greenwich Hospital. In fact, one of the first I th I'm not, I have an idea he is actually the first black biographer, Britton Hammond. Um, I do encourage you to find him. His, his uh, autobiography is online. He was an American um, slave who was kidnapped um, and taken to sea. He had all sorts of adventures and he wound up in the Royal Navy. He was wounded and he was recuperating in Greenwich when by the most amazing chance his old master happened to be visiting Greenwich and they were reunited. And that's the sort of the first one. But the point being that he was taken in to uh, Greenwich Hospital just like everyone else. So just to give you an example of the sort of range of um, jobs or positions or status that you would find people in. However, it was always a bit unclear, those people who were brought um, by their masters uh, to England from the colonies, what their legal position was. The masters mainly assumed that they remained slaves while they were in this country. France actually had laws about it, you know, the law that you could bring someone from the colonies and they would remain a slave for two years or you had to send them back before then. But England never had anything like this. In 1765, Granville Sharp brought the first case of Jonathan Strong to challenge the rights of slave owners from the colonies. And there were various other sort of cases brought that all ended inconclusively until 1772 um, with a Mansfield judgment in the case of James Somerset. And a lot of people then, and still now, you still see it occasionally, say that the Mansfield judgment made um, slaves in Britain free. It didn't actually. There was never any law about slavery in England. There was slavery in Scotland as well because of the, the law thing there. And in France because they had these particular laws. But never in England. And as the Mansfield judgment said, there was no slavery. Therefore, um, James uh, Somerset could not be compelled to return. That was the point. He is free in this country, but might be, as the judgment said, a slave elsewhere, as indeed is still the case. Um, whether, you know, that if whatever the, the law overseas is, once you are in England, you are subject to English law. Um, Mansfield, incidentally, these are his two great nieces. Uh, one of them, Dido Elizabeth Bell, was the illegitimate daughter of his uh, nephew. And the other one um, is the daughter of another nephew. And they were both brought up together in um, Kenwood House. Okay, the abolition movement, um, after the um, sort of cases that Granville Sharp brought to the courts, this was um, the uh, 1784, the case of the slave ship Zong. You may know this. Um, the Zong had a lot of slaves on board who were ill, um, and they were thrown overboard while still alive in order to claim insurance. In fact, it's a bit odder than that. There's some, there are a lot of theories about what really happened on there, but this was something that caught public imagination and really um, was given a huge amount of coverage in England. The Quakers formed a committee against the slave trade in um, 1783, 
And then finally, the Society for Effecting the Abolition of the African Slave Trade was founded. And out of that, I mean, in a steady progression, you've got today's, am um, not amnesty, the anti-slavery um, society, which was, you know, can therefore trace its roots back to the um, 1787. One of the people who was very keen on um, campaigning against, uh, well, not necessarily the slave trade, because he'd been involved in it in a minor way himself, but um, uh, against the treatment of slaves was Equiano, Oliver Equiano, always known as Gustavus Vassa. Now, his uh, autobiography, uh, The Interesting Narrative and Other Writings, is also available in Penguin. He spent a huge amount of his time at sea. Um, he, was, he was the servant, the slave servant of um, a, a British uh, sea captain, and he was in the Royal Navy. And there's a lot of, um, you know, the, the crew lists in the National Archives containing his name, uh, or at least he was known then as Gustavus Vassa, which was uh, how he was baptized. Eventually, in 1807, we got the abolition of the British slave trade, and then finally, in 1834, abolition of slavery in the British colonies. That didn't actually, of course, stop um, black people um, either from the, the West Indies or from uh, India, Indian subcontinent, to Britain. These are a fair number of what are known as Laskers, uh, uh, sailors from the East Indies and China. And again, we see in, um, this is a, a dispensary, which was a kind of, um, well, it was a poor people's uh, doctor in the days before the, the National Health Service. And you can see here the variety, this was in Whitechapel, the variety of nationalities that were there. Again, though, you mustn't think that they were all poor and dispossessed. Here is David Ottoloni Dice Somber, who is the first Anglo-English MP. He was elected in 1841. He was disqualified in 1842 for bribing the electorate, but hey. You know. Also, um, his story is fascinating. Um, this was published a couple of years ago. The Inordinately Strange Life of Dice Somber, Victorian Anglo-Indian MP and Chancery Lunatic, <laughs> which doesn't begin to do justice to his, his life, which was, I do encourage you to discover this, really fascinating. But um, what happened basically was he was brought up, oddly enough, as a Catholic he came from a, an Anglo-Indian uh, family. Um, his grandmother was the begum of a small principality, uh, the ruler of a small principality there. And she was, he was her favorite grandchild. He was spoiled something rotten. He came to England, as I say. And, but he was brought up, oddly enough, as a Catholic. The family had converted to Catholicism at some stage. He married the daughter of a very Protestant uh, Viscount who was not at all happy about this, not because he was um, Indian, but because he was Catholic. This was the problem. Um, discrimination in England has always been based more on race and class than anything else. But anyway, he, um, he did behave, start to behave very, very oddly after his marriage. And there was a commission of lunacy on him brought by um, the family, you know. 
Uh, Commissions of Lunacy, there's loads of records in the National Archives and they're just a riveting read anyway. They were, when it was the case of someone with a lot of property that needed to be um, looked after to prevent fraud, to prevent them being exploited because they couldn't look after their own um, interests, then the Chancery Office, the Chancellor's Office, would have um, an inquiry to determine whether the person was really... Um, you know, insane or incapable of looking after their own affairs. They were called commissioners in lunacy, and then a bit later, masters in lunacy. <laughs> I rather like that. <laughs> anyway, they investigated um, Dice Sombrum and found, actually, they came to an incredibly, well, the first inquiry found that he was insane. He appealed against it. I mean, there's boxes and boxes of papers on this. And finally, they came to what now seems an amazingly sophisticated view that he was sane in India, but um, insane in Britain. But that's actually quite interesting because psychologists generally agree now that insanity, what we call insanity, is culturally determined. And that was quite an interesting... So anyway, I don't want to get into this. It's a really good subject. But have a look also at the, uh, the mental health um, exhibition as well that's, uh, that's on. Um, here's someone else who, um, again, different aspects of the experience in Victorian England. Um, I was talking, uh, uh, well, I suppose it was a couple of years ago, we were talking about what appears to be the disappearance after the, um, the slave trade finished in 1807, what appeared black people seem to disappear from English records. And someone was saying about them not coming to England, but actually what we agreed is nobody's been looking. This is the problem that they are, there's obviously, you know, a continuum of people arriving for all sorts of reasons, but we don't necessarily know what the reasons are. This is Fanny Eaton. Um, she was a charwoman, actually, and then later on kept a boarding house. Um, but the pre-Raphaelites absolutely loved her looks. She was from uh, Kingston, Jamaica, and she appears in various censuses. She had a huge number of uh, children, a large number of daughters. Her husband um, died young, and then they kept a boarding house. But she is painted very often by the, the pre-Raphaelites. And we have no idea how she came here, why she came here. She just suddenly pitches up. Talking of the censuses, this is quite an interesting case. And this is, I'm getting down to one of the problems about identifying black people in records. Here we have um, Spot the Black Person, uh, born in Northumberland, uh, born in Jamaica, Manchester, London, where's that? Newcastle, Cumberland, Northumberland. Well, we would make a fair guess that it's Edward Albert, born in Jamaica, and he's a hawker. And actually, yes, you would be right. He had come over to England um, in pursuit of money he was owed by a Scotsman. Um, after this, they actually moved uh, down to London, I think, to try and get the money back from him. And he was interviewed by uh, Henry Mayhew for the uh, London Poor. And when he, Henry Mayhew um, interviewed him, he mentioned in passing that his wife is also black. And here she is, Ellen, born in Manchester. But she, like Edward Albert, 
was black. Now, this is the major problem with finding people in the records. Nobody, ethnic origin doesn't appear in censuses until 1991. Not 1891, 1991. Before that, it's all to do with birthplace. So you can actually run these through. You can run um, Jamaica through. And you would assume, perhaps, that um, he's, uh, he's a hawker from Kingston, Jamaica. He could be white. He could be any color at all. This is an interesting case, or I think it's interesting anyway. If you're a family historian and you come across Henry B. Brown, public lecturer from uh, born in Richmond, Virginia, in USA, you would think, well, I think at last somebody literate if I found that in my family history. In fact, oh yes, and then if you look up his uh, children, here's the, uh, the birth certificate of one of his children, Edward Henry, born in um, Bristol. Uh, lecturer on mesmerism, all very normal, very above board. I don't know if you know Henry Box Brown's story. He was um, a slave in America, in Virginia, and he escaped to the north in a box. And that's why he became known as Henry Box Brown. He was in a box traveling for uh, I don't know how many hours, an awful, awful long time. But he came to England to lecture on his experiences, which was, you know, it was quite a common thing in Victorian times. A lot of people did. But he stayed on, and then he turned to mesmerism and, you know, the family act. But you see, out of the, the censuses, you would never know that. You wouldn't have a clue who he was or what his, his background was. Also, um, and I'm, again, if you found this little lot, this is um, a women's college. If you found the photograph here, um, in, uh, if you looked up the, the school in the census, you wouldn't know that there is at least one person here who is of Indian origin. But again, it's only through the photo that you know. Most of the um, Indians seem to have come for educational purposes. They seem to have been the better off. But again, there is nothing like enough work done on this. We don't know. The Victorian period, there are obviously a lot of people, of course, from the empire coming over for different reasons. Anyway, I will finish to give you time to ask some questions with just a little reminder to go back to my theme of family history. This is a chap called Dennis Barber with a portrait of his ancestor, Francis Barber, the servant of Dr. Johnson. And um, he is not the only person. I still don't know. I still am not sure whether my ancestor was black or not. But um, these, it, again, and it isn't just people of African origin who have uh, genes from all over the world. Um, I can give you a few other examples. William Makepeace Thackeray, the novelist, Vanity Fair, his grandmother was Indian. Those of you who are 
uh, horror movie fans. Boris Karloff um, also had Indian ancestry. There are a lot of us. So I want to close by encouraging you perhaps to look into your family history to see where your ancestors came from, but also to encourage you to look in the records of the National Archives. There are lots more besides the wills, the certificates, the censuses, the uh, chancery commissions in lunacy. There are a lot more to discover, and there's a lot more to discover about the history of black people in Britain. Thanks very much. This event was recorded on the 8th of November 2011 as part of the Diversity Week event at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>